Welcome to Worst Seats in the House. Uh, Michael Russo and Auntie LaPanta, our uh, virtual uh, Aquarius Home Services studio, has taken us to the tippy top, the roof of Madison Square Garden. The worst seats in the house at <laughs> Madison Square Garden. We can touch the roof from my broadcast position yeah. here in this building. The one thing I'll say though is, I uh, the sight lines here are amazing. Like, uh, like it is the worst bad. seats in the house, but they, like to me, they put the visiting media right on the red line. Um, you see that corner right there above where the players come out, the wild players come out. That used to be the press box when I first started covering the league. You were in the stands, um, and that was before there was no netting, Anthony. And so if a player came down the left-wing boards and stopped at the blue line and took a shot, everybody hit the deck and just tried to all. I was, I was willing so to So you actually had to watch the games then I instead know. of just bury your head in your computer? But, you know, even back then, I had horrible eyesight. So everything on that side of the ice, the Wilds, uh, if, you're, if you're envisioning this at home, the visiting bench side of the ice, I saw perfectly. But everything on the other side of the ice, the home bench side, in that far end zone, I could barely see. And, um, man, I'll tell you, uh, like, I remember back then, it, you would rather take a puck to the face as a beat writer than have it hit your laptop because we, there were a couple of pucks that flew into that little makeshift press box, and they would remember the old phones, like actual, like, ringing phones with a dial-up line. We had a couple of pucks fly in there and just, just destroy those phones once, and uh, it was it – was, uh, it was a cool place to watch a game from that low, and you appreciate this, you know, the speed of the game. But man, up here, I'd much rather be here. I love calling games here, and in fact, I when I got here this morning, which I we should add that I was here much earlier than you for today's show. <laughs> and when I got up here to the press box and was wandering around, I ran into the Wild training staff. Mm -hmm. They were just kind of they'd never been up here before, so they were just kind of up touring the place. And a couple of them turned to me and said, I'm amazed how high up you are. And I said, well, this is nothing compared to some of the other buildings. Yeah, Edmonton, and, where you're and, like... Right, about a quarter mile from the rink. Yeah. In terms of how far we are, we are up high here, but they did a great job of the way the seats are, the how quickly they elevate rather than get distance away from the ice. So it's I love the I love the sight lines. I, I love calling games here. It's, it's it, it, When you walk into some of these buildings... And there are a few in different sports that when you've walked in, it's still, there's still just a little bit of awe. And I'll never forget walking into the old Yankee Stadium for the first time, walking into Fenway Park for the first time. One of the stadiums, arenas that still might have affected me more than any was I went to do a college hockey game at Lambeau Field one time. And Wisconsin was going to play Ohio State. We got there the day before as everything was getting set up. And it was about five in the afternoon, middle of winter, and a light snow is falling, and we walk out of the tunnel that the players come out of at Lambeau. And it was such a surreal moment. The stadium lights were on, and it just, it was like all the plays, the games that I had watched on TV at home came to life. And it was that and Yankee Stadium were the two for me that probably affected me the most. But from a hockey perspective, I think this is it. It's You just walk into this building and you have this, suddenly it's memories and highlights become real of things you've seen here. Yeah. And just so, walking up that, do you, do you come in through the loading dock? No, no, I always come in through the side press entrance. So, oh, so when you walk in the loading dock and you walk up that, it's... 
it just super it, steep. Right? Yeah, and it yeah. feels like it's not even. How can this be? How people just wander in here? <laughs> Nobody asked for a credential or anything. I just walk right in and up this ramp where it's it. You can tell that it's probably had trucks driving up and down it for 75 oh, yeah. years. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it really, uh, like, I even just as you're telling that, I'm thinking about, like, when I was a kid and my, I remember just had this, uh, my parents going to an Elton John and Billy Joel concert at this building and dropping my brother and me off at uh, my my uh, cousin Janie's house and us just hanging out with them, like, essentially babysitting us as they were at this concert and um, coming to, to the circus here at Nassau Coliseum. My, my grandfather was a huge Yankee fan, so we went to Yankee Stadium all the time as a kid. Uh, my brother and me were more Mets fans, so we went to we we loved Shea Stadium and things like that. Um, do you believe? So I covered one series when I covered the Marlins at Wrigley Field, which was um, amazing. I've covered one game in my life at Maple Leaf Garden, Maple Leaf Gardens, um, but I still have never been to Fenway Park. So when I was in 1999, um, I think it was 99. Um, a bunch of us were covering the draft. In, I believe it was 99. It was either 98 or 99. I think 98 was Buffalo. 99 was, uh, was Boston. And a bunch of us were, were covering the, the draft. And I, the Red Sox, I think, were playing like the A's or the White Sox. And a bunch of us hockey writers had tickets to the game a couple days before the draft. And there was the expansion draft coming. And... Um, I'm trying to remember the exact scenario, but that was back when the, you know there was no Twitter, you did, there was no like uh, you know email release. You actually l- literally got a phone call from the PR guy to let you know when there was breaking news. I mean that that's how strange it was back then. And I'm about to leave my hotel room at the Boston Marriott Copley Center to go meet all my colleagues in the lobby. And Mike Hansen, I believe it was, the PR guy for the Florida Panthers, calls me up. The late Mike Hansen. He's actually uh, was from Minnesota. Um, call, calls me up and says, hey, just to let you know, we just traded for uh, Trevor Kidd in advance of like the expansion draft, and he's going to be our new goalie. And so uh, that night, um, I'm sitting, I'll never forget it, calling Trevor Kidd up at Lake of the Woods. He's drinking a Molson at his log cabin, and he's telling me, like, painting the scene for me. And that entire night, while my f- friends and colleagues were at Fenway Park watching the Boston Red Sox play, I was writing about Trevor Kidd for my hotel room. So I still, to this day, have never even stepped foot or even seen Fenway. Because, you know, I've never been to really that side of town. It's not, like, right in the middle of downtown Boston. You have to be heading there on purpose. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, like, what was your experience at Fenway? Like, the big monster, all that? Like, It was cool. It was, so this would have been 25 years ago. I was, the first time I got there, I was doing radio for the Twins at the time. And made a point to get there early the first day of the series, just so I could go out and walk out on the field and yeah. I was amazed how many dents were in the monster when you yeah. got close to it, that it's, it, it is not at all smooth. Mm-hmm. So you can see how every ball that hits it is an adventure that comes off it. It was cool. And when you walk down those hallways from the clubhouse to the dugout there and at the old Yankee stadium, I was at the old tiger stadium that year. It, it, you, you're walking down the hallways that, Ty Cobb walked down, that mm-hmm. Babe Ruth walked down, that Ted Williams walked down. Yeah. And it's, it really, as a sports fan and as a little bit of a sports historian, I would say, I mean, a very casual historian, those moments were, they were breathtaking. They were, the, if you didn't get a little tingle in your spine from that kind of stuff, then you're probably not human because it, yeah. you'd walk, it, it was just, I don't know. There was just something. It's hard to put it into words. Just how 
awe-inspiring it is to be in the buildings where those kind of people walked and in yeah. the hallways where they walked. And even though New Yankee Stadium is a is an unbelievable spot and it's beautiful. Never been there either. It's not like old Yankee. Yep. It's just not the same. Yeah, I've been to City Field, but I haven't been to Yankee, the New Yankee Stadium. When I was a younger younger sports writer, you know, in my teenage years covering high school events, I um in Delray Beach, Florida, there's actually a ballpark there called Little Fenway. And they got a little big monster in left field and a bunch of high school games are played there. It's right next to actually to at least what used to be the Bucky Dent um, um, uh, like hot, like baseball camp. And then, um, God, who's the former former umpire has a school down there too? Harry Wendelstadt maybe? And um, anyway, uh, so this thing, like I actually covered A-Rod when he was in high school at Westminster Christian playing at Little Fenway when he was in high school. That just shows you how, how young I was. I mean, I like how, how old I am now, but I, I think I'm the same age as A-Rod, but I was covering high schools back then for the Sun Sentinel. And uh, I remember going to those games, and that was obviously before he was A-Rod, but every, there was this growing thing, and I told the story before. It wasn't at Little Fenway, but I covered a section tournament once against Benjamin where Westminster Christian was playing, and my, my uh, roommate, Marty Mulford, who you know, he's worked for the National Predators now as the vice president with the uh, Columbus Blue Jackets. Um, he was my roommate best friend growing up and um, he's telling me you got to check out this A-Rod guy this Alex Rodriguez he's amazing and so I go cover this section and it's like best two out of three first game I think Westminster Christian wins but A-Rod like struck out two or three times made an error at shortstop I came back I'm like I don't know I have a lot of hype for this guy <laughs> not very good and then next night he went like three for four with a couple homers and uh, won the series for Westminster Christian. Uh, Dave um, uh, Doug Mankavich was on that team as well. Rich Hoffman was the coach. It was, it was, it was fun back then. Let's talk about the Wild. Um, so they've dropped two in a row coming into tonight's game against the New York Rangers. A little uh, Wild. This is the first of what six of seven on the road. Anthony, they go home to play Arizona after this little two-game stretch against uh, the Rangers and the Islanders, then go on a four-game road trip starting in Washington, Raleigh, and then go down to, to Tampa and Florida for the father-son trips. Um, and really mentor trip because a lot of, uh, you know, uh, fathers can either can't make it or, you know, or, you know, the obvious. Um, so w- what do you think of the last two games? I mean, that game in Buffalo was as fast a pace game after a sleepy start for the wild. It was as fast paced game. Uh, I mean, unbelievably skilled plays that Buffalo team looked really good. Looked really good and was exactly what was advertised. Mm-hmm. Highly skilled that the couple of young defensemen, Rosman Stalin and yeah. Owen Power are they are game changers. And when those two guys were on the ice, their second wave attacks throughout that game were impressive. I didn't think Minnesota defended particularly well. In fact I thought it was one of their probably their loosest games defensively yeah. since maybe the opening three games of the year. But it was fast. It was exciting. It was fun. It didn't have the kind of emotion in the building that I thought it was going to have right at the beginning. I think that was, I don't know if it was intentional because the Sabres almost didn't make it an emotional thing. They obviously had, uh, you know, more celebration, but it wasn't like they, you know, it probably would have been a lot more emotional if God forbid something bad happened. But I think it was, they had the moment of celebration, but then almost didn't harp on it. And the other thing, Anthony, is this was not their first home game since the storm where they, that was an emotional game where, you know, 30 or some odd people died in their cars and in their homes and, and things like that. Um, so so I think that also wasn't, you know, really on everybody's mind. In fact, I didn't even see a, an inch of snow anywhere in, in, in Buffalo. No, that was crazy. Yeah. People were asking me about 
that if you were buried, I said, I, there was no snow anywhere yeah. other than in a few parking lots where yeah. you saw the piles that had been yeah, but they got shoved rid of it. aside. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. It, no, I, I thought that was good. I, I thought the to get a point when you're down two is always a good point. Felt like in the overtime, the Wild could have had three or yeah. four power plays and got none. And then I, I thought the game against St. Louis was a little sleepy early from both teams. Blues took advantage of a power play, and how many times have we talked about that between the Wild and the Blues, where five on five, the game favors Minnesota, but St. Louis's special teams yeah. win a game for them. And when you really think about it, it was a bad luck double minor against Mason Shaw. It was a legit penalty, should have been four minutes, but St. Louis scores on that power play, and if you take that away, it's a 0-0 game going into the third period, and what? Minnesota's third period was terrific. They just couldn't beat Grice that night, and I thought about half the third period, Grice had no idea where the puck was, and <laughs> they just kept hitting him. Yeah, yeah, there were a couple uh, definitely plays they went back, Felino, Kaprizov, Boldy, I think. Um, you, you know, uh, this is going to be weird to say, but it, like the fourth line, who I think has been a real strong suit during this hot stretch that the Wild have had the last six weeks, they've been really bad the last couple games. Really bad. I don't know if it's the pressure of knowing that one of them's coming out of the lineup when they're healthy now that Duhame's back. Greenway's going to be back in the lineup tonight. I assume Zuccarello's playing. We haven't met with Dean yet. You probably know. Um, I mean, Mason Shaw, to me, has got to probably be the odd man out because they're not taking Durr out, even though I thought Durr played terribly in in, uh, in Buffalo. Um, and Ryan Reeves isn't coming out of the lineup in his homecoming in Madison Square Garden. So Shaw's the guy. And Shaw lately has really had some bad moments. I mean, obviously the kneeing in San Jose, um, not getting a puck out the other night in Buffalo, um, obviously the double minor. Um, do you think that pressure has probably led to the, their issue? Because i got to think that Dean has talked to the fourth line because they have not been very good. Yeah, I don't know if the – I don't know if Dean's talked to him about who's coming out or anything like that. He obviously will have today, but guys can always do the math, and they always know, and there's always – for sure, there's some internal pressure, and internal competition's a great thing. I would assume that Shaw's the odd man out here tonight in New York, and that might be contributing to it, but I think you're right. I think they've been off, and it's it's funny how as soon as you take one guy out of the lineup, how things change everywhere in the lineup. Mm -hmm. And so you take Zuccarello out, the Goudreau, Boldy, and Hartman line that had looked like it was starting to gain some traction, even though I, I thought Duhame was real good with those guys, that line's not quite as dangerous. Then you take Greenway out of the lineup at the last minute, and every, we've talked about that. Every time you take one guy off that grief line, they're not the same. Yeah. And so the fourth line really wasn't in a normal routine and rhythm in the St. Louis game, but I didn't think they were great against Buffalo either. Which surprised me that Dean had them on the ice on that last play. I mean, I know it's a bad goal by Flurry, but Ryan Reeves, it's supposed to be man on man. And he got he got drawn into the middle. I mean, that is, you know, again, it's a bad goal. I'm not trying right. to excuse Flurry, but he's Deline's supposed to be fronted there, and there's, you know, he had a. That's why he takes the shot because he had a free shooting lane, you know. Yeah, and there that isn't the only time those guys have have made mistakes, but they get leaned on a lot and. Yeah. It, there aren't and a lot it was of the front end of a back-to-back, -back, so he's managing ice time. But right. in that game in particular, because Dean's always so in tune with who's playing well and not, like, Durer was so atypically terrible that game that, like, I just would not have trusted them with three minutes left. I would have just said, you know what, I'm going to ride the last three minutes out with the guys 
um, you know, with the with the with you know Eric Sinek and Greenway and Felino and those guys. Yeah, anyway. And you have a chance to win a game. Yeah. So when you're that close to winning a game, I think you you put the yeah. hammer down and you say we're going to fight through it yeah. and we'll we'll deal with tired yeah. legs tomorrow night, tomorrow night, and I, worry about a win yeah. tonight. I, I, it's funny because uh, Buffalo Sabres fans lately have been asking me, like, are you covering the Sabres now? Because I tweet about them so much. And it, a lot of it is just the fact that I was down in Arizona when the Sabres were down there and was so impressed with how they played that game. Um, you know, how Tage Thompson looked in his homecoming in Arizona. He goes, gets point on all three goals, scores the winner and with his mom in the building with, you know, in the third period and midway through and Dalian had a bunch of points that game as well. Um, but you know, it is funny because I've been telling you for the last couple of weeks, I'm like, I'm t- like Rasmus Dalian is a different, different player. Like you got to admit, Anthony, I was ahead of my time when I traded for D- Rasmus Dalian for <laughs> Connor McDavid. It just, I was like four, four years too early and then I gave him away for, Nothing. Yeah. Well, you got to have a feel for when those guys are I about know, to bust exactly. out. Exactly. It just shows I can't be a good GM, right? Because right. I just get rid of guys too soon. But don't you? I mean, Deline, <laughs> yeah, this is spe- he is special, man. He is. And, and that's why is... it's like just one one thought on the Deline's first goal. Like I know that it's like you know, and even me, I'm I'm guilty of it. You know, you're like, all right, Boldy got walked, Addison got. You know, sometimes you just got to tip your hat to a great play. That was right. unfreaking believable. And I thought he was great all night, and he is. This is a guy who was the number one overall pick, and when. When he was coming out, it was a no-brainer that he was going to go number one. Mm-hmm. And I remember talking to, at that time, uh, Phil Housley was in Buffalo, and I remember talking to him, and he said, the guy's in- unbelievable. But it takes a while for yeah. defensemen to adjust to the NHL game. Not Look to mention Josh the fact, Morrissey this year. Well, oh, where did he come from, like, yeah, suddenly? Where unbelievable. Yeah. Well, and that was a coaching change, I yeah. think, too, in, in Winnipeg. I was talking to some of my friends in Winnipeg who said – when they made the change, one of the first things they did was pull Morrissey inside and say, you are capable of a lot more than you've ever shown. Mm-hmm. We're taking the reins off. You just go play. Yeah. And like when Chorchetti met with Eric Hall after, you know, like yeah, that kind of a little thing. bit. But it, I just think when you watch Darlene and, and at the end of that game, when Buffalo was trying to come from behind and there were a lot of stretches where Donnie Granado had power and Darlene on the ice together that's when you get two guys like that. And how many times have we talked about teams that were fortunate for when they had the number one overall pick Buffalo had it twice when there was a franchise defenseman available. And I think we're going to be talking about that defensive core led by those two guys for a long time. Yeah, no doubt. Um, January 25th at split rocks is our next live show. Um, Anthony and myself will be doing a podcast. I think probably next week from Raleigh, that's probably our only opportunity. Um, and then January 25th will, will be our final show of uh, January, and that will be live at Split Rocks, we assume. <laughs> Had to postpone the last couple, uh, and, and we'll give you those make dates at some point. Uh, we plan to do three live shows, I believe, in February, three live in March uh, to make up for the two that we've uh, canceled. And, um, again, we are coming to you from the, uh, um, the, the remote Aquarius Home Services studio. And if you have any questions about the water in your home, do you notice any rust or hard water stains on your appliances, dishes, sinks, toilets, strong odors or smells, funny taste in your water? Well, if you want to learn more about what is in your water or water, how would you say water here in New York? Water. Anyway. Um, water? Uh, yeah. Isn't that what you used to always say? Yeah, I know. Water. I think I've, got, I've gained like a Minnesota accent now because everybody used to make fun of how I used to say water. But anyway, uh, my friends over at Aquarius Home Services offers a free water analysis. 
Their trusted water specialists will come visit your cabin or home, test your water, and provide you with quality Connecticut water treatment options. I have it in my home. It is absolutely amazing. The Connecticut water treatment system provides the world's most efficient water softener and provides the best reverse osmosis system in the industry, providing water, worry-free drinking water. And um, I know a lot of times people, you know, promote companies and say, oh, yeah, I have it in my home. Uh, trust me, I have this stuff in my home. It, uh, it's just amazing. So call, call Aquarius today for a free water analysis. They're just a click away at AquariusHomeServices.com. And don't forget to mention that Russo sent you. And here's a word from Bosch Law Firm. Hey, hockey fans. Jerry Bosch here again from Bosch Law Firm and WorkCompExperts.com. If you're injured at work, it's never too soon to contact the lawyers and awesome staff at Bosch Law Firm. We'll answer all your questions, help you set up your work comp claim, and help you select professionals who will be there to help you, not the insurance company. And with almost 30 years of litigation experience, if your benefits are denied, we'll fight to get you paid. Bosch Law Firm. The call's always free and there's never a fee unless we obtain benefits on your behalf. Call or text us at 651-333-8300 or visit us at workcompexperts.com. Back here, worst seats in the house, Michael Russo, Anthony LaPanta, high above Madison Square Garden Ice, where the Wild uh, are going to have a morning skate at 1130. The Rangers are doing something different the last um, month, where basically players that live in the city have their morning skates at Madison Square Garden, and players that live on the outskirts of the city, up in Westchester County or whatever, go to their practice facility. So they have two optional morning skates at two different sites, the Rangers, uh, these days. And uh, so the Rangers... Um, a lot of times used to just practice at their practice facility. And so, you know, visiting teams would come here for 1130 morning skates and get on a little bit early. That won't be the case today. Well, we'll skate at 1130. That's when I'll tweet out uh, who's starting goal and the lineup and things like that. Um, let's go to Twitter questions, Anthony. Uh, Tony um, asked Tony Hoagland, um, who I know well. He actually is my State Farm agent. Um, used to actually advertise on the show. Tony asked, what was the most interesting part of the day at the Situation Room? I could be a psycho uh, I could be a psycho fan in the moment. Any truth to my brain's conspiracy theories that the NHL and Gary Bettman have it out for Minnesota? Well, that's funny because everybody says they have it out for Toronto or New York or this. I mean, like, that's the one thing. And, Anthony, you've been in that room with me. We've been to the Department of Player Safety here. Although, I'll tell you what, Anthony. If you can, you got to go to the new Department of Player Safety in their new headquarters we here. Went, that over we went last year. Um, oh yeah, we did. It is unbelievable. Yeah, like they have windows spot. now. Yeah, they had windows. <laughs> and remember last year yeah. when we went there, it was the day of the huge blizzard here, yes. yeah. where I basically like the whole town was shut down. Yeah, yeah, and you, it was. I was worried that you might have to go to the emergency room yeah, on your I, way over there. Yeah, I had like honestly, like uh, you would have thought I was like, uh, I, it was unreal the number of times that I fell. That's when I had the back stuff too going on. Um, remember Damien there, uh, the V, the number two there, George Paris's right hand man. Uh, he took him like three hours to get into the city from where he lives. Um, but anyway, um, that's the one thing that I, I, I will a hundred percent tell you. Um, and I am doing a story on this latest uh, trip to the situation room. There is no conspiracy theory against teams. There's no teams in there that they hate. They are just calling it letter to the law. And I think that what, what, the way it's evolved has been really impressive. I mean, one thing that I learned, like within five minutes that I was there, Mikhaev for uh, Vancouver had a goal waved off because Bo Horvat was offside, foot and a half offside. What was really interesting is that before there was even a challenge, um, so the way it works is they have loggers in there. They have 11 loggers um, working different shifts. 
And seven or eight of them have been, seven of them have been there for like seven or eight or nine years. So they, you know, they feel like they really strive for consistency and that's a big reason. Then they hired four new ones. And they're all part-time loggers. Some of them have jobs at banks. Some of them have jobs, they're medical professionals. One's a lawyer, um, some teachers, they work their nine to five job and then they come in there, do maybe a game or two and then leave. And anyway, so the way it would work is say, Paul, Paul was logging that Winnipeg Vancouver game. He all of a sudden yells out goal Vancouver. And what he does immediately on his end is he checks the line and he checks for goalie interference right away. He sees that it's offside. So he yells for Rod Pasmo, the senior executive vice president of the league, Kay Whitmore, who at that point wasn't in the building in the, uh, in the situation room yet. Um, and Bill McCreary, who's the hall of fame retired referee that was working the game. They, they have, they have these seven or eight supervisors that run through there every month and take different shifts for a couple of weeks straight. Um, they right away say, hey, uh, offsides, uh, we're probably going to have a challenge here. So for 20 or 30 seconds before there's even a challenge, they know that it's offsides. The other thing that I found interesting was there's a guy named Grant Heather. He was the video goal judge in Winnipeg that night. He's the Ron Foyt or the Ian Sandercock, the two video goal judges in Minnesota. He's their version in Winnipeg. He right away pipes into the situation room and says to them, hey, just to let you know, I'm seeing offsides here, so we could have a challenge coming. So for like 30 seconds, they know it's offsides before the linesmen even get on there. Obviously, Rick Bonus challenges, it took two seconds for them to wipe out the goal. And it was just interesting how it worked. Then a couple, you know, the, the seven o'clock games happened, six back in Minnesota. Mason Shaw, double minor, high sticking reverse. It was cool being in there for that. There were a couple overturned goals on the ice that they totally agreed with. Um, one by Francois St. Laurent in the Chicago and, and Calgary game. The other by um, uh, Ryan Pickmara in the Anaheim uh, Boston game. So it was just interesting how it worked. The other thing that they're doing right now, Anthony, is they're logging. You want to jump well, in? I was yeah. going to jump in because I, I go back to what you said first, that they are really determined to get yeah. it right. And, and I've, we felt that that was eye opening from the very first time we ever went in there that they, and I love listening to them talk with the officials when the officials throw the headsets on, they have a great relationship with each other. Officials are very rarely reluctant to change their call because of pride or anything else. They all want to get it right. And I always find it interesting because now that we've been there, we know how it goes. The first thing they're doing is is the puck in the net legally. And even though they know sometimes, they have to wait to see if the the coach is going to challenge. And so they might even be telling, hey, we think this is offside or we think this is interference. But until the coach challenges, they can't make that call. And those rules are all in place for a reason. I, I think it's – I just – I really think they, the league has yeah. made a, a significant effort to yeah. get them right and to be better at it. And I like the review process the way it is right now, the challenge process. I love the fact that they added the, the caveat of the – penalty if you're mm -hmm. challenging you're wrong so the coaches really are only challenging what they are what they view to be egregious misses or obvious misses i think the there are thing other things i think would be feasible to add to the challenge process like pucks going up yeah, in the and crowd I, and all I was that just kind of that they actually i think agree sometimes they don't get the greatest looks but i think that they would they would concur with that um the other interesting thing what you just said also about integrity when tony asked is like later in the in the same period or, or game, there's a play where uh, JT Horvat scores, I think, the tying goal for Vancouver. So again, Bo Vancouver, Horvat. yeah, uh, 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 was it Bo Horvat? 
No, I'm saying they were JT Miller scored a tying goal. So then it was JT Miller. Yeah, yeah. Did I say? You said JT Horvath. Oh, okay. So it was, yeah, I yeah, knew it J- had to be one or the yeah, other. Yeah, JT Miller. <laughs> okay. So JT Miller scores a tying goal. So again, Vancouver just had a goal wiped out. So right away, you know, like obviously Bo Horvat was clearly offside. So you know that there's no, you know, conspiracy against Vancouver. But then, you know, JT Miller scores the tying goal. They review the line and Elias Pedersen has control and possession as he's going over the line. But it was one of those plays where, you know, he kind of preceded the puck over the line. But it was it was clearly on side under the rule of the control and possession. And they actually said out loud that, you know, man, uh, that's that's a good goal. And for their for Winnipeg's sake, I hope they don't challenge it. You know, so there you go. I mean, it was like, you know, they knew that right away that if they challenged that being offside, that they were going to have to say it was a good goal and they would get a power play. So, you know, they they actually sit there and they just want the process to be right. Consistency. The other thing that they're doing in there that I thought was interesting is um, they have a whiteboard there, and there are things that it's notes for loggers to like start clipping things that they normally don't clip. So two things that they are clipping right now is one goalies intentionally knocking the 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 nets off the moorings. Every instance of the net coming off the moorings, they're making a note of it. They're clipping it, and they're going to bring it to the GM's meetings to see if they think it's a trend that needs to be addressed. And then the other one is how fights start, and the reason why is that Matt Dumba instance. Not this wasn't the specific reason, but the example that I'm giving is that Matt Tubba instance in San Jose where he hits Matt Nieto clean and all of a sudden J- Jake Megna comes in and attacks him. Two guys actually attacked him and they don't get the instigator. And so they're, they're noting that there's this trend in the league that they feel that guys are being forced to fight after clean hits. So they're noting now how every single fight starts, like what was the, uh, the, the you know, what was the the precipice or the uh the what preempted the fight just out of curiosity yeah. we've had this conversation are they in agreement with the fact that yes it's it, you just i don't understand why it's so challenging to call the instigator an instigator yeah. and instigator. Yeah, and when i said yes to you i should I, they it wasn't that that they were in agreement they what their agreement is that you shouldn't have to fight for a clean hit you know, right. so which it's, by yeah. definition yeah. is the instigator yeah. so then if you don't want to give a guy two five and ten then change what that penalty is so that mm-hmm. officials are more willing to yep. call it. And the other interesting thing is back to the Nets coming off the moorings. Um, you know, they are actually, I think this upcoming week will, in will Philadelphia. Will be the Matt Murray rule? Yeah. Well, that was, I mean, he had two more instances while I was there, and they, they showed during a TV timeout him wiggling it, so they're clipping all this stuff. But it happened to Carter Hart. But the one thing that they are doing is they, they do the accidental on purpose. They're, they're, they are bringing this to the GM's meetings, certain goalies that seem to have do it more often than not. But the R in Philadelphia, they do think that there are a problem with some of the pegs. And they're what they're doing, they're going to do all these experiments with different net it, nets. They're going to be throwing like 200 pounds of force on different... They're basically going to try to find a way to figure out what the weight limit is of some of these to get this off. And they're, they're just trying to make it... Um, a you know a fix what they do think is part of the problem is that it, these nets are coming off a little too easily. Uh, but some they are. But how, some really goalies, other yeah. than the Matt Murray game, yeah. when was the last time in a wild game we what, we thought yeah, there was an know, issue with? It? I, I remember mean, the, the funny the funniest thing that I still happens to me, Anthony, is that Toronto fans c- go after me on this subject and say, "Well, it happened to Flurry," and you don't even mention that they are what they're referring to is when when. 
Fleury got crashed into. Right. And the net came off the moorings. And that's their their definition of the net coming off the moorings. Yeah. The, the it, Wild it was, had three offensive zone possessions that were ruined by the net coming off the moorings. And two of them were as blatant as any yeah. that I've seen in years. I, I'm trying to remember the game. There was a, I think it was against St. Louis, maybe, maybe like eight years ago. That was the last time I remember it happening more than once in a game where mm-hmm. you thought, okay, that this is the second time this guy's knocked the net off. Yeah, in a wild game, I'm talking about. So it, I just I don't think it's a major problem. I think it's there's a guy in the league that is known for doing it, and we saw him that night. You talked about the fact that they saw him during TV timeouts in this recent game, well, that night in St. Paul, we saw him fiddling with it as the, the well, not the grounds crew, the ice crew was out there trying to fix it. He's messing around with it then. I mean, it was, it was blatant. The officials missed it that night, but I don't think it's an epidemic around the league. Yeah. And Leafs fans have all, they're all whining and like, you know, that they're being attacked and all this stuff. It's a bunch of crap. I mean, um, but back to Tony's original why these guys, they're, they're stewards of the game. They want to get it right. The other interesting thing is Coley Campbell, who, you know, former Rangers coach here, right? Uh, actually up until last year, um, when the Florida Panthers finally won a playoff series with Andrew Burnett behind the, behind the bench. And I bet they still wish he was. Um, you know, he, uh, the last time the Wild uh, won a playoff series was 96. The trend that started after the Stanley Cup final, obviously, where they lost to Colorado, started in 97 with Coley as the coach of the Rangers. It was in this building where in overtime, S.T. couldn't hit the back bar, and nobody knew it went in, and they uh, had to stop the game and realize the game was over. Um, but Coley Campbell is, you know, the, runs hockey operations for the National Hockey League. And he, there's a camera in there 4k camera that comes out of the ceiling and a giant like microphone like you would see at a radio station that comes out of the ceiling and he sits at his house when he there are times where he comes in he sits in his house and watches every game of every season at his house and he could focus in on if he's he has the ability at his home to watch four games at once but on a night where there's like say eight he could actually focus in on the situation room and be part of the process. And they, he could sit there and control the camera and look at what they're seeing. And he's, you know, and it's just hilarious because he just starts talking. Sometimes you even forget he's there. Like all of a sudden he'll just start talking. The voice like, of God yeah, just it appears. Really, it, is, it's, it is hilarious. Um, I might use that for the story that I write, the voice of God. I like that. Um, but it's, it is. I mean, he watches every single game and all of a sudden he'll go on mute and a GM it's because a GM calls him to bitch about something. And, and it's just, it's fascinating listening to what he has to do. And also the process of, you know, when they were back in a little closet looking at games on VHS tapes and 10 inch TVs, and they never, they never wanted to stop the VHS tape because, you know, all of a sudden they would maybe They'd miss, miss something. Right. So, I mean, it, it really has evolved and, and they're actually building up a new room on the other side of this, uh, of their headquarters in Toronto to make it even better. So, well, and I think when it's what was interesting is there, but also when we were in the player safety department, the guys in charge, they don't miss a play. And I remember last year talking to them where they were like, if there was anything that happened in a game the night before, we want to have seen it, be aware of it, perhaps even have already talked about it, so that when the GM calls me in the morning, yep. I'm not caught off guard by it. Well, that was so, what George yeah. Peros told us, remember, yep. about hits, where he was like, before... I don't want to get a call in the morning and not have already seen yep. any. So I want those guys marking anything, anything. that is a, at all of interest 
even if yeah. they don't think there should be supplemental discipline, if they don't think there was a penalty missed, yeah. anything that was even close, I want to have seen it so that when I get that phone call, I can say, and I remember I asked him, well, how many times a year do you get a call where you weren't aware? And he said, maybe twice. Think about that. Two yeah. times all season he gets a call yeah. and is not even familiar with the play that's being referred to yep. on that call. That's why it's like a lot of times, and obviously it's just verbiage, but like a fan asked me on Twitter, are they reviewing the, you know, Robert Thomas hit on Hartman? Are they reviewing the uh, whoever Erickson uh, collided with the other day? They, they review everything. Right, every yeah, hit. Yeah, every hit. I remember the they had the big color-coded spreadsheet that was, mm -hmm. yes. here is every yep. hit, here is every penalty, here's every play that was not a penalty that yep. we thought might have been, here's every penalty that we thought maybe shouldn't have been yep. a penalty, and they'll end up with anywhere from 16 to 22 to 30 different plays highlighted, noted, yeah. just so that they can go back. And now if they want to sort them, hey, let's look at every play from last night that we think was a missed, a potential miss. Yep. And if it's that when they'll watch them, sometimes our room will be unanimous that, no, the ref got it right, shouldn't have been a penalty, yep. but they leave it marked just because it was at least worthy yep. of a, a second look. And so then the next day when the GM calls, they say, yeah, we looked at it last night, and eight of us looked at it, and zero of us thought it was a penalty. Yeah. Um, well, they showed me – so they showed me the Buffalo-Minnesota log sheet, and they – just as an example, and I went – and they were showing me through it, and same color-coded, but over time – Lots of how many one did color. They th how, how many they, did they, they think thought there were about five missed calls? Is that right? Um, one on in the wild, four on them. You know, the too many men, Goudreau being held. They weren't totally in agreement of Erickson Eck trip. They thought that was a battle with Tuck. But uh, Kaprizov, and then the big one was Hartman having a stick taken away and tackled by the goalie, which is why, right. like, and I don't know led, if they ever showed it, if you guys ever showed it yeah, on that Valleys. led directly to yeah. the winning goal. Yeah, like, all these people were like, where was Hartman? Why was he late coming in the zone? I don't know if you guys didn't show it because the play was coming the other way, but the reason why is that he was getting tackled with the ref watching him. Right. And so anyway, they did watch this, and here's a little scoop for you. Um, and maybe it's because Bill Guerin's father-in-law passed away, so, you know, Craig Leopold was doing him a solid and saying, hey, I won't, don't be bothered by this. Craig Leopold, for the first time ever, called Coley Campbell about the officiating that night, and they had to have a discussion. And and there you go. I mean, you know, so it just shows you. And and um, and Coley Campbell was well versed on what happened in that game and didn't necessarily disagree because of this logging sheet. And um, you know, I ran into Dan O'Halloran, who was the supervisor of officials that day in Buffalo uh, before any of this incident, and he was telling me because I was telling him I was going to the Situation Room the next day. He was telling me, he goes, how invaluable it is from that, that every single game that he works where he's a supervisor, you know, as a supervisor, you miss things. And so he'll, after the game, go back to his hotel room, grab the logging sheet because it's spit out immediately, and he'll go through it at, with video, and then he gets in touch with either the refs, the, the linesman, or Stephen Walcom to discuss the game. So, I, I, you know, I, I just think, like, I know that we have, we all, trust me, I'm guilty of it. You know, have a tendency to just rip on the league, rip on officials and things like that. Um, they try to get it right. So, um, good question, Tony. Um, well, it only led to a 20-minute answer. I know. But, I mean, you know, to <laughs> I, me it was I think fascinating. It's all right. yeah. It was great. Yeah, and, and you know what? Um, this is why, actually, talking about this right now, i got to get my intermission story done. I think I've told people I'm doing this uh, big 
feature on what it's like to be in an NHL locker room and intermissions. I think that's going to run next week late. Um, but so I'm going to work on that all day tomorrow here in New York City. Um, but now that I've talked about it, as long as I did with Tony, I kind of wish I got that. I, I almost more motivated to write that right now. It's fresh in my mind. But that will run closer to the All-Star game. It was just a really cool day in the Situation Room, and I always appreciate the league letting me in there and seeing what the process is like. Let's go to some more questions. Uh, Joseph asks, um, you guys have talked about uh, Beckman and Walker having success in the NHL. Is there any chance the front office sees them as possible deadline, quote-unquote, pickups, hand the reins to the kids situation, if you will? Uh, No. I mean, if they're healthy, they're not going to be your trade deadline pickups. I mean, there's no handing the. They're trying to. They're trying to make the playoffs. There's, this is not a rebuild situation where you just hand it to the kids. Um, so I don't think that would happen. Mr. Moon asks, uh, "What's the Wilds' record when they go 11 forwards? It feels like it never works. Uh, they're two and three. Um, they lost to their first game. They did it was that home game. Um, uh, who was that against? Uh, I can't remember. But then they beat Carolina with it. They beat Arizona with it. Lost in San Jose with it, and then lost the other night in St. Louis. The first time they and did the it, St. Louis was, was it different San- because oh, you know who it was? It was Seattle. It was the four nothing loss at home. Yeah, and yeah. there there have been a couple where it was driven by roster injury. Yeah, didn't like, have a like, guy available. Yeah, I mean, you know, and the, Greenway they did not know was going to miss the game the other right. night. And so that wasn't yeah. done by design. Yeah. I think I think they've only made the choice to go eleven and seven when they could have gone twelve and six, like twice. Where yeah. it's been a yeah. hey, let's do this from a strategic yeah. standpoint. The first three I think were like that. Yeah, because they had and, the long breaks after. Remember, but right. and San Jose one, was because I mean, to be blunt, they. Didn't want to play Fogarty. They, right. you know, that's that was the one where I just think that was pretty. That was a management mistake. Like to me, they they brought a player that they knew they weren't going to play on the, these back to back games in Anaheim and San Jose as almost like a reward. Yeah, and, and well, that one, and you had, you're almost better just bring Walker, and then the coach would probably feel like he'd rather play Walker rather than Fogarty. But, but they, you had to lose two guys for were, that player to be necessary. They ended up losing one. Yeah, and so Goligoski jumped in. You're right, but. If but I guess I, what I'm saying is that when Felino pulled up lame in warm-ups in San Jose, if Walker was on the roster instead of Fogarty, I think Walker plays over Goligoski. Yeah, I, think, I think. I probably, and I think they had just decided that we'll use Goligoski as our insurance, but if two guys happen to go down, we need another guy mm-hmm. here, so we'll bring Walker. I think they had just made their choice yeah. that if if they needed one, it was yeah. going to be Goligoski. And Greenway the other night, that was not expected, and, um, you know, we'll try to get to the bottom of it today, but it's clear, you know, uh, it's clear when Dean Evison, after the game, said he wasn't available to us, that's all I'm, I can say, that there was some sort of disciplinary thing that happened there, and we'll try to get to the bottom of that today. Um, but that one they did not expect. In fact, at 4 o'clock when Dean met with the media, he told no lineup changes, and he wasn't being cagey. He really genuinely didn't know that Greenway wasn't going to play. Um, Brandner says, uh, trade deadline is a ways away, but what sort of player would the Wild really be aggressive for and have a chance at, and who is the biggest piece the Wild will potentially ma- maybe move? Um, I don't I don't know. I mean, like, like, I still think that this team could use a center. But, you know, the other thing is, and I also think that you could put Hartman at center and try to get a – scoring winger to help Boldy along like a, you know like the guy I mean I know I, I keep on saying it's a fantasy the guy that I I'd love to see is Kane but and they could afford him if they if he was willing to come here and if they felt like he was the right fit and things like that they will be able to as long as they don't get devastated by injuries and have to use up a bunch of cap space here 
they will be able to, if Chicago is willing to retain a little bit of money, uh, would be able to afford him at the deadline. But again, Kane would have to want to come here. Maybe he loves Flurry. We know he has a relationship with Billy Guerin. Um, but I don't know. What do, what do you think? I think it's highly unlikely. Yeah. And I really haven't thought about it much more than that, just because it doesn't seem it doesn't seem likely. I keep thinking Kane's going to end up someplace more like, like New York, yeah, where well, it's a, a spot. This could be the team. Yeah. And it, he has a relationship with Chris Drury, too. But you never know. Yeah. Billy's been... A, He's been aggressive, and he's made a couple moves that, yep. I mean, just go back to the whole buyout of Parisian Suter. There aren't very many GMs that would have made that move. So he's made some bold calls, and maybe he's working something behind the scenes on this already. I, I don't know. It yeah. just seems unlikely to me. And, and they're trying to accrue as much space as possible. I think that's one reason why they, you know— why they've gotten in a pinch sometimes and have to go with the 11-7 is because, you know, like, yeah, the other night you could say, well, if he had another forward on the lineup, then if Greenway all of a sudden can't play, well, you throw that player in and not 11-7, and seven, but it, but most likely that player was never going to play, and now for one day you're wasting cap space with maybe an $800,000 player on your lineup. And so one reason why I think sometimes they get into a pinch is that they don't want to just waste cap space because, again, as the season goes along, you accrue more cap space and things like that. Zach asks, um, when and if the team is healthy, 100% healthy, do you see Marco Rossi back up in Minnesota this year? I think if healthy, he's probably not. Um, but you know, he's starting to play much better down there and, you know, maybe, maybe that is as, as, uh, forget who asked him, maybe Joseph was it, uh, you know, maybe that's their trade deadline pickup, quote unquote, that would be more to me obvious than a, than a Walker or Beckman, just because of also the position. Tell us about Moe's or unless you want to, you have a thought on that. Well, I just, I don't think it's likely that at this point, it's hard to imagine where Rossi fits in this lineup this year, but that can all change. If a top six guy or a skilled guy wound up on the shelf and Rossi continues to play better and better in Iowa, it's possible. But I, right now it just seems like it, there isn't an, a logical spot in the lineup where he seems like he'd be the best fit. But we'll see. Yeah, a lot of things can change. Yeah, Moe's ice house. Moe's at the you ice house. For, I do like Moe's, <laughs> and it's they've got great food. Great place to watch games. Uh, it's a great setup there. I know I've talked a lot about the pastrami sandwich. I love the pastrami sandwich. The, they have a Nashville hot chicken sandwich that's also good. And I had some friends who went there the other day who said that they really enjoyed their pizzas and flatbreads. So give those a shot. But it's a great spot to watch a game. It's at Fogarty Arena in Blaine. Uh, it overlooks the curling rink. And it, I've said before, it's such a great spot if you're there for a game anyway, but it's just a great place to go watch games. Go in there to watch Sunday football or to watch the Wild play some night, and you'll have a blast. You won't be disappointed. It's Moe's at the Ice House. Uh, here's a word from Royal Credit Union. Take the checking account challenge from Royal Credit Union. Compare your checking account to Royal and see why it makes sense to switch. Royal's checking accounts have no hidden fees and lots of free features that make it easy to stay on top of your money. You can deposit checks with the Royal's mobile app, receive real-time notifications when transactions happen, and even freeze your debit card in seconds. See what other features you're missing out on and make the switch to a Royal checking account at rcu.org slash royalchallenge, insured by NCUA. Here's a word from Chris Lindahl Real Estate. If you're like most people, 
you've been wondering if the real estate market is going to crash. Well, I went right to an expert the other day, and that, you know who it is. It's Chris Lindahl, and I asked him point blank. Chris started in 2009. As we all know, there were similar tensions back then, so I wanted to know where we were headed, and here's what Chris told me. The supply of homes would have to outweigh demand, not be at all-time lows for a crash to happen. The average days on market would need to spike as well. If you look right now, houses are sitting on the market longer. Prices are being cut a lot too, but the seasons and market have both been shifting, so it's hard to say that the sky is falling. Number one thing people can control right now is their equity being at all-time highs. Homeowners that want to guarantee they keep their equity need to be proactive, not wait until it's too late, which is why so many are coming to Chris Lindahl Real Estate for their guaranteed offer program. It's a great hedge against high inflation and interest rates vaporizing people's equity. Request your no-obligation guaranteed offer right now by going to chrislindahl.com. Terms and conditions apply. Back here, worst seats in the house, Michael Russo, Anthony LaPanta, high above Madison Square Garden, January 25th, our next live show at Split Rocks, uh, about 10, 15 minutes left in the show. Um, Jordan asks, uh, when a player exits the team, do you guys touch base with them, wish them luck, say your goodbyes, have any of them been emotional? Um, It depends, obviously, on the player, but yeah, I mean, if I have a good relationship with a player, I usually send them a, you know, hey, uh, thanks for everything all these years. I even did that, like, you know, I mean, you wouldn't probably think so, because I didn't know him long, but uh, Tyson Jost, when he was lost on waivers, I sent him a nice note. He wrote me a super nice note back. He and I were just always friendly with each other in the locker room. He was always just a really fun guy to shoot the breeze with, Um, and even in Arizona, when I was there last month uh, for the Sabres game, he and I chatted for a while. Gorg and I chatted with him for a a, a ton the other day. Um, he had a whole a harrowing experience during the storm. Anthony, he was driving to Toronto to fly home for Christmas break, and he gets he took him. You know, the Peace Bridge is like two minutes from downtown. Took him like an hour to get to the Peace Bridge. It was total whiteout. Like it was clear when he left, and then it was total whiteout. He gets to the. It took him forever to get over the Peace Bridge. He gets to customs, and he asks the custom agent, like, "What should I do? Should I turn around?" And the customs like, "Do not turn around." There's like a bunch of cars that have tried to turn around that are stuck out there. And Tyson said that a lot of those people are the people that die, that they got stuck in their cars, couldn't get out, lost, you know, ran out of gas and essentially froze. Then he's dry. He finally gets going on the highway on the QEW. And I only know this because I just drove it twice uh, to and from Toronto. Um, And he gets into a 10 car accident while he's driving to Toronto to fly back to Edmonton. How about that? I mean, it's unbelievable. No, and to go back to the question, I I don't have, I haven't had, I've had more, I would say, with coaches. Like when Mike Yo was let go, I texted back and forth with him. And for me, it's more when then you see these guys in their new, wherever they land, mm-hmm. that, yeah, I've had some great discussions with them. And I, I wouldn't say with any of the players that I've been close enough with them on a personal level where it was emotional but with the coaches and, and front office people yeah I spend a lot of time with those guys and have a lot of conversations with them develop good relationships with them and it's sad to see them go and yeah. you always feel like and sometimes it's with coworkers too that there have been so many points in life where you just you kind of, I in fact I just thought about this the other day when we were in Buffalo and we had dinner with Chad Graff before we went to the game because he was in town to cover the Bills Patriots game the next day and I was talking a little bit with Margo when I got home and I remember those years early in my travel which was it was you Chad Graff Mike Greenlay and I and the four of us if we were on the road for 50 nights over the course of the season we probably went out and had dinner together 
Now, I don't know if we had 50 off nights, but let's just say we had 50 off nights. We probably spent 35 of them together. Mm-hmm. And it just felt like that was going to be life, that it was hard to imagine it changing. And now it's so different without those two guys, a part of our travel over the course of a season. I, and said, it, and I said this last night. I went uh, went to dinner with Lunani and um, a couple others, and I said to Lou's like, "Have you? Where's Lapanta tonight?" I said, "Lapanta's daughter's here." I said, "You want to hear? You want to hear something weird?" Lapanta and I, who are usually joined at the hip, you and I on the road this season have had dinner once in St. Louis. That yeah. is it. No other trip. Right. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, I know, and that's so. And part of it's you know you haven't been on every trip this year. Some of it has just been the way off nights have worked. Yep. And and yes, like last night, some uh, of it is that we're tired of each other. That was for, that's for sure a big part of it. But well, we had dinner in Buffalo yep. before the game. Oh, that's true. So that 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 almost counts. No, and I'm gonna I'm gonna have <laughs> dinner with uh, with Louie on Wednesday. I had a great dinner last that night with, with Gianni and her boyfriend Zach, who are out in Stamford, Connecticut. It's it's one of the cool parts of this is now that I've got kids living in four time zones, the three of them that are not in the Twin Cities anymore, that I get a chance to connect with them when we're on the road is fun. And had a great dinner with Gianni last night down in the Tribeca area and walked back to one of my favorite music and jazz spots afterward for an old-fashioned. It was, it was terrific. Ran into Louie in the hotel lobby on our way in and chatted with him for a while. We're going to go to dinner Wednesday night. I don't, I don't know if you're coming with us on that yeah, night. I'm um, having dinner with a couple of buddies tomorrow night. Um, by the way, I have a feeling that when I put the new batteries in this recorder that one of them is still is old because it's already down to one bar. So I think I... So if that, this show comes to yeah. an abrupt halt, you'll yeah, know why. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I screwed up. Um, here's a good question from Chris, our number one center. A little passive aggressive there. Uh, although at least he didn't put it in quotes. Um, our number one center has two goals in the last 17 games playing with two elite playmakers. Um, doubles to four if you include the last 19, uh, which was fair. That was nice of him. Uh, when does Dean stop doing the lineup based on vibes and start going off uh, production? I mean, a lot of it is just, you know, sort of no choice. I mean, like, I, you know, Erickson Eck works well with Felino and, um, and Greenway. And, you know, that's the one thing that I just keep on saying is, you know, if it were me is I would try Hartman back there because Hartman is playing really well right now. I would try Hartman back there and go back to and put try steel with with Goudreau and Boldy because I just think the skill might mesh if you put him at left wing. I don't know, that's just me. It might the but I think what Dean's hoping is that by leaving them the way they are that it creates two lines that have the ability to score. And right now to me if you were just talking about pure scoring ability, Ryan Hartman probably has more than Sam Steele. So if you load up that top line, now maybe you do it where it's just a couple of spots within a game, offensive zone faceoff, let's throw Hartman out between those guys and see if they can make something happen. Steele's game has been fine. Keep in mind now that the last two, he hasn't had Zuccarello there, so that's a part of this recent run. And I, I think it's. I think the team is probably more dangerous if the Boldy line is a scoring line, and that might be as much of what Dean's trying to achieve as anything else. Because I was in the Situation Room, I didn't uh, really, really focus too hard on the Wild game against St. Louis. Um, I thought Boldy really was not very good in Buffalo with that line. How was he in I St. Louis? I thought they were good in yeah. St. Louis. Yeah, they Wild had twenty three shots on goal in the third period. Mm-hmm. They were all over him. The first two periods, I didn't. I asked Ryan Carter during our broadcast if he thought it was more two teams that were really determined to defend, or if it was two offenses that just both looked tired and off. 
Remember, both teams had played the night mm-hmm. before. Both teams had had to travel. St. Louis from Montreal, Minnesota from Buffalo. And I thought in the first period it just looked like neither team really had it, had good offensive flow. But then as the game wore on, I thought St. Louis played hard. And then in the third period, Minnesota was all over them. I can't remember what the shot attempts were. I think they had something like nearly 40, if I remember right. Ended up with 23 shots, the most shots they've ever had in a third period. And just couldn't score. Mm-hmm. And I thought Boldy was, I thought he was fine in the third. I didn't Most think shots he was. ever in 22 years? In the third period of wow. a game. 23. Uh, John Rickard, is Orcas Foligno 100% healthy? His skating at times has seemed labored. I don't know this for a fact. I can't imagine he's 100% healthy because he's had so many issues this year and he had the knee and things like that. Um, but, you know, the one thing, uh, Marcus is definitely not the same player that we saw last year, and he would openly admit that. He has voiced lately a lot of disappointment in his play and his production. When he scored, though, the other night, wasn't it amazing how then all of a sudden he just, it looked like the weight of the world had been lifted mm-hmm. off his shoulder? And he made a couple plays and all of a sudden had some jump. And we've wondered so many times if guys are pressing and there's no doubt that it was getting to him. And we've heard Jordan Greenway talk about it too, that it was getting to those guys that as well as they were playing in the way they play, they weren't scoring. And you, it was starting to get to him. Yeah. And I think when he scored in Buffalo, it yeah. It all of a sudden ignited his game a little. Bill has a really good question. Brandon Duham seems to fit on any line that he's put on. I mean, there's a great example, right? He's up in the lineup the other night. Tonight, he's probably going to be on the fourth line. Does he make a player like Jordan Greenway expendable due to his lack of offensive production? You know, that, I mean, it's an interesting question because I do think that even though Greenway has two years left on a deal that pays three, I think he's extremely respected in this league at 6'6", and I think people sometimes always look at a player with scout size that's like him. You know, he's still young enough and things like that. There's still a lot of people that respect him in the league. And Duham's RFA, he's going to be cheaper if you re-sign him than Greenway. Do you think that could eventually wind up uh, being a trade chip? Eh, well, I think anything's possible. I don't think that I would label Jordan Greenway expendable. I think right now they feel like the surface hasn't yet been scratched with how good a player he can be. Mm-hmm. And he's got to prove it without a doubt, but his contract right now is what I'd call a team-friendly contract. His game has been good, even though he hasn't scored. I actually would be surprised if he didn't have a good night in New York tonight after being out of the lineup I, the I other night. I would agree that he's going to be extremely motivated tonight. Yep. Um, Boldy for All-Star Game asks, uh, this is going to be our last question. Um, as a reporter, what's it like trying to cover someone that doesn't want to talk about themselves individually? A recent example is Connor Bedard, but I'm sure you've covered uh, many others. Is an annoying, admirable, and do you expect it more by working in hockey? I, I got to tell you, this question's perfect because everything you asked at the end is exactly how I feel. It's annoying and admirable. Um, like, yeah, it, like I, I, for one, I felt bad for the reporter that was trying to two games in a row. She tried to get Connor to talk about himself in the last one. You know, he basically kind of snapped at her. But it was admirable. like I think I respect that about him. But as a reporter, it is hard. Um, you know, that's where you got to use your reporter skills and try to talk to other people about him. I think that one example would be Kaprizov. Right. And not because he didn't want to talk about himself, but because his English the last couple of years, he wasn't really talking to us a lot. So it got to a point where we had to always, hey, Felina 
Angelino, what do you think about him? Aizuki, what do you think about him? And eventually, it wore, it, they got ticked, um, and you know, where they always had to be sort of the spokesman for him. Uh, but that's where you got to, you know, talk to other people. And if you're going to write a Bedard feature, you know that that's going to be the way it is. And you're going to have to talk to his coach and his friends and things like that. Um, what's it for, from your standpoint? Yeah, I think it's always, there is an admiral admirable part to it for sure and hockey players I have a an unselfish a common thread throughout the league where they're they're unselfish they're team first guys for the most part usually if I really needed to get something from them about themselves I might talk to them more about a specific part of their game their skill set or something and I want I'll just find a way to get them talking about how they train how they prepare and usually then you can find some way where they'll in a roundabout way come back to talking about that part of their game yeah and guys in every sport they don't want to talk about it when they're on a hot streak necessarily because you know they're all a little bit superstitious i suppose but also they don't want to ever make it sound to others that they're being a braggart yeah and i think that's what a lot of hockey players deal with is if they all of a sudden get quoted as yeah, I think I'm pretty good at this. They know they're going to get all kinds of crap about it when yep. they get on the bus or in the room. And so I, I think that's a lot of the reason why guys are reluctant. Yeah. I think there's a difference between confidence and, and like, ego and arrogance. Like, you know, if you're, if you're not confident in yourself and sometimes say that you're good, you know, who, who's going to believe you are? One of the and, things that all pro athletes have is – they all have arrogance. Yes. And they all, that's what makes them yeah. great is they know they just have a belief that they're better than the guy across from them. Yeah. And I I don't know And the, it is how else it's, to it's a common it. thing they're wired that way like if they screw up in a game and you ask them about it it's like they they it's like they're offended. You know like there is it is or if they're in a slump they still like well I think I played well. I mean JT Miller. You know like like he, his offensive production this year has been bad. He's been bullying players in Vancouver like he's just he's under the firing line right now and the other day he has a quote that says well about uh, like I I'm really basically he said like um um, I, I feel like uh, one uh, that I'm proud of myself for not cheating the game or something defensively, and everybody was kind of laughing at it because he has not been good defensively this year. So anyway, um, but it is it is uh, like there was a wild player once that would not talk about himself at all. Like told us, do not ever ask me about myself. Like and you know it was just ridiculous. And then he scores a goal in Colorado. And he's like sitting in his stall waiting for us to come up to him. And I refused. I stayed away. I did not give him the benefit. Yeah, I, <laughs> and, I, and trust me, like I'm, uh, th there was a lot of contentious moments with him yeah. and the beat writers I leading just, up to I this. I think that players have yeah. to, they also have to understand that as media members, we have jobs to do too. Yeah. And every once in a while, it doesn't happen often, but every once in a while you have that conversation or interaction with whether it be a player, a coach, a GM, where there are going to be times where, look, that there are statistics in a game that are not flattering that still are relevant, and we mention them. There are stories that you have to write where you need a player to comment on, he scored a goal in seven games in a row. What, what do you want me to write if you're not willing to say what you've been, what's been going well yeah. for you? Yeah. And I, you have to write it. It's a story. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's a great show. By the way, uh, Gretzky 7 goes, in case I missed it, your thoughts on the new Trample by Turtles uh, LP. I love it. I absolutely, I really genuinely do. 
uh, got to see their show at the Armory uh, about a month, a couple months ago. Uh, their sort of album release party, and it was just, uh, it was terrific. So let's let Trample by Turtles take us out again. January 25th is our next live show at Split Rocks. Thanks to our incredible sponsors, which are all the Tuttle's restaurants and Grain Belt, Aquarius Home Services, your local authorized dealer for Connecticut Water Treatments, Bosch Law Firm, Moe's Tavern, Royal uh, Credit Union, and Chris Lindahl Real Estate. Thanks, Anthony. See you at dinner. <laughs> So much coming out, there's nothing going in I know that you feel like you're never gonna win Oh, but the world won't forgive a winner you know, Even back then, I had horrible eyesight.